want to apologize to our outstanding Foreign Service people that uh, were a few minutes late. We had something we were all doing together just a moment ago. We had a couple folks come in late, but we're thankful that people like you want to serve our nation in the way that you do. Uh, today's hearing is going to be very brief out of no disrespect. I know many of you have prepared extensively, and we apologize. You're probably not going to need a lot of the preparation, but we, uh, we thank you so much for your service. We had the opportunity to meet with many of you individually, and we thank you for that. And uh, we look forward to a very, very successful hearing. And with that, I'll turn to Senator Cardin. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I met with several of the uh, nominees, and I warned them, don't be offended if we don't ask you a lot of questions today. Uh, I, I was commenting to the chairman, I don't think we've had a more qualified group of nominees come before our committee, people who have performed more public service than the seven that are appearing here today. And I thank them all for their public service. Uh, these are career diplomats who have served in some of the most difficult places in the world and have served with great distinction. We thank each of you, and we thank your families particularly, because we know this is a family sacrifice, a family commitment, and we thank you for that. Just want to make an observation. If my math is correct, uh, the seven nominees here have served in about 25 different important positions as ambassadors, DCMs, or deputy secretaries. That's an impressive list. But just as impressively, if we're going to have to translate uh, this um, transcript into all the languages they can speak, uh, we're going to have to use 11 different uh, translations, including Portuguese, Mandarin, uh, Arabic, and Russian. So th this is a group of people who are well accomplished. They've done great things in very difficult positions and are now willing to take on some very, very key responsibilities. And we look forward to their service and we look forward to this hearing. I know that's widely felt throughout the committee. Um, I have a long opening statement, but we've got something on the back end of this that's uh, pressing us. So uh, without doing that, I would say to each of you, when you give testimony, if you'd like to introduce family members or whatever, we'd welcome that. We thank them for their commitment to our nation and their support of you, and we appreciate them also being here. So uh, with that, um, I guess Durbin and Collins, we will let uh, Senator Collins. Okay. We filibustered for just a moment. Okay. We'll go ahead and we thank you for being here. I know you've had something else relative to gun control, but we thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, members of the committee. First of all, let me express my deep appreciation for your delaying the start of this hearing and my uh, sincere apologies for being late. We all have had those kinds of days, and this is one of those for me. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce the President's nominee to be our next ambassador to Lithuania, Anne Hall, a career member of the Foreign Service. She not only has a distinguished career in the Foreign Service with the expertise in the Baltic states, but she also has strong ties to the great state of Maine. <laughs> 
Earlier this month, Anne and I discussed her qualifications for this position and the current challenges facing Lithuania, including Russian meddling in the Baltic states. I'm impressed both by Anne's extensive experience in the region and her clear-eyed view of the challenges facing this relatively small but critically important NATO ally. I am certain that Anne would do an excellent job representing the United States and Lithuania as she has done throughout her career in the Foreign Service. Now let me tell you just a bit about Anne's background. She grew up in Orono, Maine and graduated from the University of Maine where she studied international relations. She is now officially a resident of Blue Hill, Maine and spends time there between her overseas tours in Europe, Asia, and South America. Anne's father was chairman of the geology department and a vice president of the University of Maine. His experiences in geological mapping in Maine, Antarctica, India, Africa, and Eastern Europe inspired Anne to become an exchange student to Chile at age 16 and later to join the Foreign Service. Anne has extensive experience in the Baltics. She served as the State Department's Office of Nordic and Baltic of Affairs in that office from 2001 to 2003. This was a critical time for the region as the U.S. worked to support the Baltic countries' entry into NATO and the European Union, both of which they joined in 2004. Then she served as, as Consul General in Krakow, Poland from 2006 to 2009, Deputy Chief of Mission in Lithuania from 2010 to 2013, and Director of the Office of Central European Affairs from 2013 to 2014. These experiences have prepared her to lead our mission in Lithuania and strengthen our already close partnership with this country. Mr. Chairman, I'm often called upon to introduce nominees, and I have to say that I can't think of someone who has a background that is better tailored to the position for which she has been nominated than Ann Hall, and it is a great pleasure to be here today before this distinguished committee. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be here, and um, as we mentioned before you got here, we're impressed with all of our candidates, and thank them for our service. I know you have other business and you're welcome to thank go do other business thank if you, you wish. Thank you. So with that, Miss uh, uh, Hall, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and begin. I know that uh, you're going to summarize in about three minutes and any written comments that you'd like to be a part of the record without objection. Uh, Try to make it less even. No, thank you so much. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, distinguished members of the committee, it is indeed a, a privilege to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the Ambassador to the Republic of Lithuania. I am honored by the trust and confidence President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me. If confirmed, 
I look forward to working with you and your colleagues to build on our already close strategic partnership with Lithuania. With your permission, I would like to acknowledge my mother, Roseanne, who is here today from Maine, my father, Brad, who is watching this in Maine. If y'all would identify yourselves in some form, there you go, thank you. <laughs> Um, I am forever thankful to them for their constant support over the years. I'm also delighted to have my sister Sue, uh, her husband Scott, and my niece Emma, who aspires to join in the Foreign Service someday, uh, here today from Colorado. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, it would truly be an honor for me to return to Lithuania, where I served as Deputy Chief of Mission until 2013. The United States has long enjoyed a close partnership with Lithuania, founded on the bedrock of the United States' refusal to recognize the incorporation of Lithuania into the Soviet Union. Today, we take inspiration from our close cultural ties and shared democratic values, and together we promote security and prosperity for our peoples and around the world. Lithuania is one of our closest NATO allies. It has warmly welcomed U.S. and NATO reassurance measures, especially the presence of American troops on its soil. Lithuania also has committed to spending 2% of GDP on defense by 2018, reaching 1.5% this year. Long a staunch and vocal supporter of Ukraine, Lithuania works to maintain a strict sanctions regime on Russia and full implementation of the Minsk agreements. Outside of Europe, Lithuania supports development of the Afghan National Security Forces and contributes to the counter-ISIL coalition. It has donated humanitarian assistance to Iraqi victims of ISIL and is preparing to deploy police trainers to Iraq. Over the past few years, Lithuania has reduced its independence on Russian gas from 100% to just about 5% today, becoming a model for others seeking to enhance their own energy security. And Lithuanian policymakers and the private sector welcome American trade and investment and support the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, which they see as an opportunity for economic growth as well as a second anchor in the security partnership. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I will seek to deepen our ties across the board from people-to-people -people exchanges and entrepreneurship to trade, investment and innovation, energy security, and promote promotion of our shared democratic values. The success of our efforts in all of these areas ultimately rests on the strong friendship between Lithuanians and Americans. If confirmed, I will make public outreach throughout the country for myself and my embassy team a high priority. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. We thank you for your enthusiasm and willingness to do this. And uh, with that, the Honorable Marie Yovanovitch, um, who is on her way to Ukraine. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and the Congress to continue our strong support for the Ukrainian people, Ukraine's reform agenda, and its sovereignty and territorial integrity. These steps are critical to advancing our shared goal of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. And with your permission, I would like to introduce um, my dear friend Jennifer Parmalee and my wonderful mother, who's sitting right here, Nadia. And I understand Nadia is on her way to Ukraine also. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I know that my father is also with us uh, in spirit as well. Like so many in Europe in the 1940s, uh, including those in the Ukrainian-American community, my parents survived poverty, war, and displacement. 
They finally arrived in the United States with me in tow in search of freedom, accountability, and opportunity, the very values that Ukrainians demanded in the revolution of dignity. If confirmed, I look forward to returning to Embassy Kiev and continuing the work of my friend, uh, Ambassador Jeff Pyatt, in helping Ukrainians make the dream they fought for a reality. Ukraine has made more progress on reforms in the last two years than it did in its first 23 years of independence. And I'm optimistic about Ukraine's reform trajectory, given recent and important achievements such as judicial reform. However, Ukraine still has much to do, including IMF conditionality, fighting corruption, reforming key sectors, and breaking the hold of the oligarchs. I want to thank Congress for its commitment to Ukraine demonstrated by approving over $1.3 billion in assistance since 2014. This includes $600 million to help Ukraine reform its security sector, better secure its borders, and defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Ukraine has made good faith efforts to implement the Minsk agreements, but the Russians and the separatists continue to fuel the conflict. We need sustained security to further unlock the political aspects of Minsk. This means Russia and the separatists must stop their attacks. Implementation of the Minsk agreements is the best way to resolve the conflict in eastern Ukraine, and we will continue to support the efforts of our Normandy format partners and the trilateral contact group. We have been very clear with Moscow that sanctions will continue until Russia fully implements its Minsk commitments, and I'd like to thank you for the recent letter to the European Council urging sanctions rollover, and we got some good news on that uh, today as well from the Europeans. Finally, we do not and we will never recognize Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea. Our Crimea-related sanctions will remain in place until the peninsula is returned to Ukraine. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you. I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, and we look forward uh, in about at some point in the future, a report card on how our next witness is actually done in Ukraine, our next uh, panelist. Uh, the, honorary, honorary, on, the Honorable Jeffrey Pyatt, who's uh, distinguished himself by his service in Ukraine, is nominated to be ambassador to Greece, and we look forward to your testimony, and thank you for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking you and Ranking Member Cardin for your warm remarks about the career foreign service in your opening remarks. And in that I speak, I think, for all of the members of our service. Deeply appreciate it. I'm, of course, honored to appear before you today as nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to Greece, the birthplace of democracy. I'd like to begin by acknowledging somebody who's not here today. That's my wife, Mary, who's back in Kiev finishing up the school year. Some of you have met Mary um, over the course of your visits, and I think you can appreciate the key supporting role that she's played during a historic period in Ukrainian and European history. Um, Mary and I have had the pleasure of visiting Greece as tourists, and while it's striking to visit sites like the Acropolis, you also get a feel for the difficult challenges that Greece has overcome as it tackles the most severe economic crisis of its post-war history. More recently, we've witnessed Greece's struggles play out on the front pages, over a million migrants flowing across Greece's borders, difficult bailout negotiations with European creditors and the IMF. But I believe, and I know this administration believes, that what happens in Greece matters, not just for Greece, but for the region, for NATO, for the European Union, and for the United States. Having just secured a deal with European creditors, Greece can breathe a small sigh of relief that this summer, will not be as tumultuous as the last, but the road ahead is far from easy. 
My friend and colleague, Ambassador Pierce, has done great work to promote Greece's entrepreneurial spirit and U.S. investment, and if confirmed, I commit myself to continuing and supporting those efforts. We also benefit from a strong bilateral defense relationship with Greece. Particularly noteworthy has been our longstanding military presence at Suda Bay, which I should point out is the only place between Norfolk and Dubai where an aircraft carrier can pull up pierside and replenish. Greece has also been a steady NATO ally since 1952, and in fact, a U.S. ship arrived just last week to contribute to the NATO reconnaissance, surveillance, and monitoring activity in the Aegean, which brings me to the topic of the migration and refugee crisis. As millions fled violence and persecution, Greece became a door into greater Europe for those seeking peace and a better future. Despite their own financial hardships, the Greek people have shown tremendous compassion to these migrants and refugees, including over 50,000 who remain in Greece. As a country, we've done what we can to support the Greek government, including nearly 44 million in humanitarian aid since the start of the crisis. And finally, on energy. As I've seen from my time in Ukraine, energy diversification is critical for the future of Europe. Just last month, Prime Minister Tsipras inaugurated the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, and a Greece-Bulgaria interconnector is also in the works. These projects will inject millions into the economy, put thousands to work, and make Europe more energy secure. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, if confirmed, I will dedicate myself to ensuring we bolster the U.S.-Greek relationship and will represent the United States to the best of my ability. I welcome you to Athens to continue the vital congressional partnership that I've enjoyed so greatly during my time in Kyiv. And in that regard, I'm especially grateful to have Senator Durbin here, who has been one of the stalwart supporters of my mission. Thank you again. Well, we look forward to uh, you continuing similar types of efforts uh, that you've been displaying in Ukraine and Greece. I know we have some similar issues there, some that are dissimilar. Senator Durbin's a very wise senator. He wanted to see how well you proposed before he introduced you, and so he's now here to do that. Uh, senator Durbin, thank you for being with us. Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you very much, and Senator Cardin, Senator Menendez. Um, and it's true, I withheld my introduction to see how well he did, and uh, he did Ambassador well, Pyatt did extraordinarily well. I'll ask that my statement be made a part of the record because I know you have other witnesses prepared to testify. Just a few words. Uh, Jeffrey Pyatt is not a uh, son of Illinois, but I gladly claim him any day. There was a time in my life when I thought I one day wanted to be in the Foreign Service. Uh, I got diverted into another business. Uh, but I will say this, he is my ideal of a person in our diplomatic corps who can tackle the most challenging assignments and do them with aplomb, with integrity, and effectiveness. He proved it in Ukraine. Many of us have been there over and over. Time and again, he gave us timely briefings on what was happening uh, in that uh, country torn by revolution as well as invasion by the Russians. I can't think of a person who could have done it better. I can recall one particular instance where I asked him as a personal favor if he would give me a call on a Sunday afternoon on a speakerphone to a section of Chicago known as Ukrainian Village, where 500 people after church on a Sunday had gathered for last minute uh, briefing on what was happening in their beloved homeland of Ukraine. He did it willingly and did it professionally. Now we're sending him to a new challenge in Greece, not only their internal domestic challenge, but also the external forces which are at work with the immigration. Uh, he is the man for the job. I'm honored to uh, endorse his uh, efforts to become the next ambassador to Greece. I had asked that my statement be made part of the record and apologize for my tardiness. Uh, without objection, we just thank you for taking the time to be here and, and uh, speaking so well of someone we respect deeply. Um, with that, uh, 
I am going to defer. Our staff had an opportunity to very intensely meet with all of the nominees, and I had a chance to meet with many of them individually. So I'm going to defer. I know Senator Cardin did also, but I'm going to defer to you and Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And once again, we underscore the fact that uh, the, the nominees that are before us are all experienced career diplomats that have demonstrated their dedication to our country and to foreign service, and uh, uh, we're very proud uh, that they are willing to continue in difficult roles. And as you know, there are, there are questions that are asked for the record, and I uh, will be asking questions and getting your response to help you uh, deal with the area that is particularly important to me, and that is good governance and anti-corruption, and how our committee and the members of the Senate can help you in your mission to raise attention uh, to these fundamental issues. That's going to be particularly important uh, in Ukraine, a country that we've invested a great deal. Uh, clearly, the um, uh, factor of concern in Ukraine is Russia and their aggression and what they continue to do and their violations of the Minsk agreements, and it goes on and on and on. But Ukraine must also deal with its uh, institutional issues and its um, uh, commitment to fight corruption at every level, and that's going to be critical to their uh, long-term stability. So we will be trying to help in every way we can. I want to ask all three of you a, a similar question, and Ambassador Pyatt's relative to your current assignment more so than, the, uh, than Greece, and that is Russia's um, uh, penetration uh, into Lithuania, penetration into Ukraine, uh, in its ability to try to influence uh, uh, through propaganda, public opinion, to cause problems for the stability of these countries. Uh, we've seen this in the Baltic countries. We've seen it in Ukraine. And I would just like your observations as to what our role should be in providing accurate information as to uh, what is happening and Russia's involvement in uh, what is happening in so many countries in Europe. Ms. Hall, if we can start with you. Thank you, Ranking Member Cardin, um, for raising this important issue. Um, Lithuania, as, as its, has its Baltic neighbors, have dealt, with, have dealt with a degree of Russian disinformation and propaganda for a long time. The, the Russians never really stopped targeting the Baltics, but certainly um, the sophistication and the scale of the disinformation and propaganda aimed at the Baltics has increased exponentially since uh, 2014, and now Russia has a slick and sophisticated media operation uh, that certainly targets Russian speakers, but it, has, it can have an insidiously damaging effect to society at large. Um, we are working with Lithuanians to train journalists in investigative reporting and fact-based reporting, and our embassy in Vilnius is actually overseeing a program um, for, for mid-career journalists from all over the Baltics. We include Russian language speakers in those programs. Uh, Lithuania is running um, Radio Free Europe programming as well as Radio Liberty programming, and the Lithuanian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Defense have uh, operate operate strategic communications teams with which we coordinate. Um, finally, we're, we are at the embassy uh, supporting uh, Lithuanian government efforts to reach out 
to their ethnic communities. Uh, the the Russian-speaking, uh, uh, ethnic Russian-speaking community in Lithuania is about 6% of the population, the Polish community about 7%. And I would say in that regard, um, in a country the size of Lithuania, um, there's, um, there's nothing that like the personal touch. And I have given speeches and reached out to Lithuanian audiences all over the country in Lithuanian. And if confirmed, I would make uh, it a very high priority for myself and my team to, to reach out throughout the country to Lithuanians, as well as Russian language speakers and Polish speakers. Thank you. Ambassador Ivanovich. Um, I think our efforts are along three lines. Uh, one is to make sure that we get our story out. And um, much uh, like uh, the work that is being done um, today by the embassy in Lithuania, I think many of those um, similar efforts are taking place in, in Kiev. We also um, put a premium on identifying and analyzing and countering uh, the stories that uh, Russia sometimes puts out that are, um, that are false. And uh, that's, that's an important uh, line of effort as well. And finally, and in some ways this is really the most important thing uh, that, that we can do, is building capacity, um, whether it's in Ukraine or, or, uh, or other countries that face this threat, building capacity within the journalistic community, within civil society, so that they themselves can get their own good news out and they themselves can counter um, the uh, Russian propaganda efforts. Um, we have a number of uh, programs, um, but I, I in the interest of brevity, I, I will stop here. Ambassador Byte, what has been our most effective tool that you found uh, in trying to counter the, the Russian propaganda? The truth. Um, ranking member chair, I, I would just make the point, I think the one thing I have learned about these issues over three years is that the Russian effort is really not about winning an argument. They've weaponized information and used information as part of, a, uh, part of their military campaign um, against Ukraine. And you can see that, for instance, I remember vividly in the spring of 2014 when these GRU and FSB teams first started to move into Ukrainian territory in the, the Donbas. One of the first things they did was pull down all the Ukrainian television content. So I think um, I have always said uh, you know, Ukraine's strongest counter to that is success at the reform effort that you alluded to in your remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could just add to that, we spoke briefly yesterday. I think every one of us has walked down the Madan and, you know, witnessed um, through stories what occurred there. And uh, I think also just the will of the people themselves for change is the number one weapon against Russia. So uh, anyway, we're glad of your work there. We thank you for that and look forward to the same taking place in Greece. Senator Menendez. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank all of you for your service to our country. Uh, let me start with you, Ambassador Payat. I was there in Ukraine when the Russians were invading. I was free to call it an invasion, uh, which it was. And I must say, I, if every uh, ambassador was like you, I would have the, high, the highest of regards for the uh, State Department and the Foreign Service. Uh, not, you did an extraordinary job. You were honest and forthright in all of your answers. Uh, and um, you didn't use the diplomatic speak that sometimes I hear. So I really appreciate your incredible service, uh, most recently in Ukraine and beyond. 
And so, and I appreciate your opening statement as it relates to Greece, because I think sometimes there is a view in the department that's a little different. Greece has been an extraordinary ally throughout uh, one of a handful of countries to be with the United States in every 20th century conflict. And the access to Suda Bay is just essential for us. So uh, I appreciate uh, those opening statements. I, I want to ask you, uh, we see uh, Greece's central bank governor has publicly called for more debt relief and more re realistic budget targets, essentially saying that the agreement Greece has made with its creditors is seriously flawed. That seems to be a lot closer to the position of IMF Director Lagarde uh, and far from where Germany is. Um, Lagarde and the IMF have the best view, I think, on this, which is that Greece needs immediate debt relief and more realistic budget targets. What role do you see? I mean, this is a European context, I gather that. Uh, but with such an important security and other relationship with Greece that we have and a NATO ally, uh, what role do you see the United States playing in yourself as ambassador to Greece in this regard? Thank you, Senator Menendez, um, both for your comments about my work in Ukraine, but also for the important question. Um, I would make a first point regarding Germany. Uh, you know, I have learned um, in the past three years in Kyiv how extraordinarily important the partnership between the United States and Germany is to a variety of U.S. interests in Europe. Um, I have a very strong German counterpart who I consult with as closely as any counterpart in Kyiv today. Um, Chancellor Merkel, I think, deserves um, a lot of credit for the leadership that she has exercised, including on the important sanctions rollover decision that happened today. Um, that said, um, we have a difference of perspective with Germany on the question of Greece's long-term financial trajectory. Um, I've spent some time with our Treasury experts who have been clear in our view that over the long term, there needs to be some form of official debt relief um, in order to put uh, Greece on a sustainable growth trajectory. I think it's important also to recognize the very courageous steps that Prime Minister Tsipras has, has taken already um, to uh, reform that economy. Lots of work still to be done. It's important that today um, you have, uh, Juncker is in, is in Athens, as I understand. You have a disbursement of over 7 billion euros in additional, uh, in additional um, uh, funding from, from the EU. So this will be at the very top of my list, um, if confirmed as I get as I get to uh, get to Athens, and my undertaking will be to work as closely as possible with the Greek authorities, but also continue the active dialogue with German counterparts that I've enjoyed over three years in Kiev. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch. Last time we had the chance to engage, I was. Uh, at the hearing of your former nomination, and you did excellently well, except that you were hamstrung by a State Department uh, uh, position on uh, the Armenian genocide. So I, I appreciate the service uh, that you had, and today will be a lot easier uh, than, than, than that hearing was. Uh, but I do want to ask you, uh, as a follow-on to the good work that Ambassador Pyatt uh, did, uh, you know, I, I read uh, the EU's high representatives, uh, uh, Moharini, uh, uh, signaling a broader review of policy later this year. Uh, she recently told the German newspaper, EU, quote, EU government should make a substantive political evaluation on the degree of implementation of the Minsk agreement and how the way forward towards solving the conflict in Ukraine looks. Now, many believe that it's unlikely uh, that the Kremlin or the separatists will implement every aspect of Minsk II. 
and some believe the EU is warning Kiev more than Moscow about implementation of Minsk. Uh, I uh, am concerned that while we certainly have obligations we want to see Kiev perform in both its transparency and its continuous work on corruption and a whole host of other issues, that there is a, also an obligation by the separatists and Russia in this regard. Uh, and so uh, I am concerned that that's a message of weakening. Uh, what, what position will you be taking on behalf of the United States uh, upon your confirmation in Kiev? Well, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Senator Menendez, that... Uh, All right, we can stop the answer there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, clearly, you're, you're uh, correct in <coughs> that Russia and the separatists have obligations as well. Ukraine does, and Ukraine has met many of its um, Minsk, uh, Minsk agreement commitments. Uh, the Russians and the separatists have not, and I think the first thing that has to happen is, uh, is a ceasefire, um, a, a true and uh, in, uh, enduring uh, ceasefire, and we're not seeing that. Um, we are, in fact, seeing a spike in military activity in the region, and that is of great concern. Uh, with regard to the, the, uh, the Minsk agreements, uh, we, we believe that this is the only way at this point uh, to move forward. This is the agreement that's on the table that the parties have agreed to, and um, the Normandy uh, four countries, uh, France, Germany, Russia, and, and Ukraine, um, are meeting periodically, and we are pressing forward with our diplomacy to support those efforts. Uh, and I'll close, Mr. Chairman, that I just hope we do not get to the point that it is a unilateral obligation that the, the Ukrainians are expected, as we do, to live up to their responsibilities, but the other entities that are involved here, the ones who created this process in the first place, uh, have to be kept to, to those standards as well. And I look forward to uh, supporting all of these nominees. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. 35 Ukrainians were killed last month. Um, the weaponry that is being utilized against them, no doubt, is Russian weaponry uh, being utilized by Russians with the separatists, and uh, I do hope that we will keep the balance that Senator Menendez mentioned. And I, I think that in our push to hope that Ukraine will deal appropriately with corruption, sometimes it sounds like we're pushing them harder than we are the Russians, but uh, no doubt uh, many people are dying in order to keep Ukraine free, and they're dying because of Russian support uh, against them, and uh, I appreciate very much you bringing, those, bringing that point up. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to all three of you on your nominations. Thank you for being uh, here today. Um, uh, I want to make uh, three quick points about Ambassador Pyatt's historic tenure as our ambassador to Kiev. Uh, I had the honor of joining him three different times with Senator McCain, the first of which um, uh, it would be hard to ever forget sitting through a 70-minute soliloquy uh, from the then-president Yanukovych uh, on the eve of his uh, ouster on the largest day of the demonstrations. And um, I know you're going to serve us just as well in uh, Greece. My, my first point is to commend the chairman on his push to move nominations as quickly as possible through this committee to the floor. Um, if we remember, um, Ambassador Pyatt was nominated just prior to the crisis beginning in Ukraine, and had we not then, under Senator Menendez's leadership, moved your um, nomination quickly to the floor, we would have been left without 
a leader without the head of our delegation, and I think the story would have played out very differently. And so at the time, it didn't seem critical that we get somebody on the ground in Kyiv, but it turned out that it was very important that Senator Menendez moved quickly to get you in place, and I think it's another reminder of why our work to get ambassadors on the ground, even in places that don't seem mission critical at the time, is important. Second, um, I just think that they're going to use your tenure to, to teach diplomatic crisis management. Um, uh, I think that the situation on the ground in Ukraine would be fundamentally different if it wasn't for the decisions that you made. And agreeing with Senator Menendez, your ability to communicate with Congress, we were able to pass, um, again, the leadership of the three men sitting next to me, uh, emergency support from this Congress, in part because we trusted that you were going to tell us the whole story and the full story. Um, so I want to make those three quick points. And then I just want to ask you as you head to Greece about the, the, the tools at your disposal and at our disposal to help countries like Greece who are on the fringes, on the edge of the sanctions conversation to stick with us. Um, we, we're, we're grateful that we've rolled over sanctions once again, but until Russia has uh, left Crimea and eastern Ukraine, we cannot relent and you're going to be going to a country that has some misgivings about automatic renewal. What are the tools at our disposal to try to keep not just the Greeks with us uh, on course, but others that may be starting to fray? Um, thank you, Senator Murphy, um, both for your comments and for your strong partnership throughout my tenure. Um, I would say on, on the question you pose, I mean, the most important thing for us to remember is why were these sanctions imposed? These sanctions were imposed first in response to the invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea, and following that in um, a brutal violation of Ukraine's territorial integrity um, with the movement of Russian troops, equipment, um, and weapons um, onto sovereign Ukrainian territory, which has now produced more than 10,000 casualties. Um, Chancellor Merkel has been at the forefront in making the point that um, the only argument for the relaxation of those sanctions is compliant, the reversal of the uh, violation of Ukrainian territorial integrity uh, that occasioned the sanctions. And I think we simply have to keep bringing the debate back to that topic. Um, it's important, and I, I'm sure Ambassador Yovanovitch will talk about um, the obligations that, uh, that Ukraine undertook as part of the Minsk agreement. But the fact is, the vast majority of steps that have been taken thus far have been on Ukraine's side of the ledger. And it's Russia which has not yet changed strategic direction and has not complied with its obligations under Minsk. And so um, the EU took an important decision today with a six-month rollover. Um, and in the event that six months from now the situation remains as it is today, I will look forward, um, if confirmed, uh, to making the case to my Greek hosts as to why it's very important for Greece to stand by the policy it's followed thus far of upholding the EU consensus. Um, Ambassador Yovanovitch, let me just drill down on uh, the line of question from Senator Menendez. I worry sometimes that we are asking the Ukrainians to make economic reforms in the middle of an invasion um, that are, are simply unrealistic given the very fact that the Russians are um, occupying territory um, and attacking along the, the front lines in order to create an economic crisis that Ukraine can't dig itself out from under. I, I don't doubt that we want to press them on these reforms, that we want them to get better on anti-corruption reforms, but I, I sometimes think that it is patently ridiculous that we are asking them to do something that is impossible in the face of an invasion. So how do we pace 
um, are pressed for economic reforms, given the fact that um, so long as the Russians are there, um, they are essentially making it nearly impossible for them to enact many of the things that we want them to do. Thank you for the question. It's a really important question. How do you balance um, those two issues, security and the overwhelming urgency of um, defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, um, and, uh, and then the push for economic reform, economic growth? And the bottom line is that Ukraine has to do both, and it also needs to work on um, strengthening its democratic institutions as well. And it's hard to do all three, but the three are actually, I think, mutually reinforcing. So if you work on transparency issues, that helps with the economic piece. And it um, helps with regard to the military and some of the uh, practices in, uh, in the armed forces. It helps with regard to um, attracting investment to Ukraine. So it's, it's mutually reinforcing. It's very difficult, no question about it. And as you, as you pointed out, uh, the steps Ukraine takes need to be paced, but they can't afford, basically, not to keep on pushing forward. And what has amazed me, coming back to this portfolio after a number of years, I was DCM in the early 2000s, is how much progress Ukraine has actually made in the last two years, when it was under threat, as you point out. And yet, they have been able to do things like um, uh, do uh, judicial reform, macro stabilization, um, push out a new um, public procurement program, and other really important reform programs. So I, uh, I'm sensitive to the question that you're posing, and I don't have a, a super good answer as, a, as to exactly what is the, the roadmap, but I think it's important that Ukraine attack these issues. I think there are many of us um, in this Congress who believe that security comes first and who worry that pacing out those other reforms too quickly ultimately undermines security, um, but I understand the balance. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, with that, I know a lot of attention has been paid to Ambassador Pyatt um, because he's been in a country that's been through such uh, turmoil and he's risen to the occasion. As a matter of fact, as I listened to all the complimentary remarks, I think you ought to reconsider going to Greece and maybe think about retiring. I don't know if you could, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you will not mess it up in Greece. But uh, I do want to thank, I do want to thank all three of you for being here. And uh, we hope that the countries you're going to don't generate as much interest. We, I know Ukraine is, so we'll continue with you. But uh, we, uh, we thank you for your willingness to serve. We ask you, if you will, there'll be questions that will come in uh, before the close of business on Thursday. If you could promptly uh, answer those so we can move you through the process quickly, we would appreciate it. Thank you again for your service and for the family members who are with you. And with that, uh, we'll move to the second panel. Thank you very much. Second panel would come on up.
Thank you. We'll now move to the second panel. Uh, first, we have the Honorable Douglas Silliman to be the ambassador to Iraq. Ambassador Silliman has been in a neighboring country that we've seen him many times in. He current, currently serves as U.S. Ambassador to Kuwait, uh, has served with distinction. He, we appreciate his willingness to, to move to Iraq. Also on this panel is the Honorable Michael McKinley, uh, who will is nominated to be ambassador to Brazil. Ambassador McKinley currently serves as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, I want to thank him for the impactful meeting that we had with President Ghani and Abdullah recently, and I really think it had a huge impact, and I want to thank you for uh, your incredible service there. Mr. Lawrence Silverman uh, is moving out of the main office to the field. I'm sure he's thankful about that. Uh, to be ambassador to Kuwait, he currently serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department. We thank you for your service, sir. And lastly, have, we have Ms. Carol Perez to be ambassador to Chile. Ms. Perez currently serves as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Human Resources at the State Department. We thank you also. Um, if you could, um, if you could give your testimony in about three minutes, uh, any written testimony will be entered into the record without objection and why don't you just go in the order that you were introduced again thank you for being here and I'm gonna have to step out unfortunately Senator Cardin has graciously agreed to chair the rest of the meeting and uh, I thank him for that Chairman Corker ranking member Cardin I'm honored to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to be the next American ambassador to the Republic of Iraq and I'm grateful to the president and the secretary for the confidence that they've shown in me. And Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I will submit my longer testimony for the record. I want to begin by thanking my wife, Catherine, and my two sons uh, for having endured the sacrifices of a 30-year career in the Middle East. They are in Kuwait and are not able to be with us here today, uh, but I know that I could not be here today if it wasn't for the love and support. Uh, if confirmed, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, I will continue to work to defeat Daesh. Backed by U.S. and coalition airstrikes, training, and equipment, Iraqi forces have recaptured about 50% of the area Daesh once controlled. We are pleased by the Iraqis' military progress in liberating the city of Fallujah. We are also encouraged that, with U.S. support, including a new $20 million uh, announced today, the Iraqi government, the United Nations, and NGOs are addressing the needs of civilians displaced by the fighting. Prime Minister Abadi is taking measures to ensure that those who have committed crimes against fleeing civilians are brought to justice. If confirmed, I will have no higher priority than protecting the safety and security of the United States and of Americans in Iraq. I will work with Iraqi leaders to promote political reconciliation and regional integration. And I will encourage economic reform to develop and spread Iraq's wealth among all of its citizens. The Kurdistan regional government remains a key political, economic, and military partner. If confirmed, I will work to expand our cooperation with Erbil and strengthen our outstanding relationship. If confirmed, I will promote religious freedom, the protection of minority communities, and the fight against trafficking in persons. And while Iraq has made some progress, I will engage the highest levels of the government to seek greater attention on these issues. Ranking Member Cardin, 
As you know from your hearings and visits to the region, Iraq is a challenging country. If confirmed, I look forward to your continued support and encourage you and your staff to come visit us to see the important work of the United States in Iraq. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you for your testimony. Ambassador McKinley. Would you turn your mic on? Ambassador to Brazil, I deeply appreciate the confidence President Obama and Secretary Kerry have shown in nominating me for consideration by the Senate. I'm also profoundly thankful for the support across my career of my wife, Fatima, and our three children, Claire, Peter, and Sarah, who could not be with us today. Having spent part of my youth in Brazil and having served as U.S. Ambassador to Peru and Colombia, I am well aware of Brazil's importance to the United States and to the region. If I am confirmed, I pledge to work with you and your Senate colleagues to continue developing our vibrant relationship with Brazil. Brazil and the United States have a rich history of collaboration. Our engagement is firmly rooted in shared democratic values. We are collaborating to facilitate trade, encourage investment, create jobs. We are deepening our defense and security cooperation. We are standing together in defense of human rights. If I am confirmed, I will do my utmost to continue advancing on all these fronts. Job number one will remain to ensure the continued safety and security of U.S. citizens in Brazil. Our mission to Brazil is currently working to support the Brazilian government's efforts to stage a safe and successful 2016 Summer Olympics and Paralympics, which more than 100,000 Americans are expected to attend. Another key focus would be to continue developing our commercial ties with Brazil. Annual two-way trade and investment between our countries reached $100 billion in recent years, but we can increase it even more. And if confirmed, I will dedicate my efforts to advancing our leader's vision of doubling trade within 10 years. If confirmed, I would also seek opportunities for our two countries to continue to partner in exchanging information about our experiences promoting transparency and accountability and confidence in the rule of law. Finally, if confirmed, I would work to secure support for our regional, global, and multilateral priorities. Whether we are seeking to promote respect for democracy in the hemisphere, defend freedom of expression, build global peacekeeping capacity, combat global health threats like Zika, or confront climate change, we can accomplish more when we work together with Brazil than we can on our own. Ranking member, thank you once again for your consideration of my nomination, and it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to have spoken earlier today, and I uh, remain uh, open to and welcome any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Mr. Silverman. Ranking Member Cardin, I'm honored to appear, appear before you today and gratified by the trust that President Obama and Secretary Kerry have shown by nominating me to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the state of Kuwait. I would like to thank my family for their support, my wife Vicki, a former Foreign Service officer herself, my daughter Lena, and my son David are here with me today. If confirmed, I will work closely with this committee and others in Congress to enhance a close, mutually beneficial bilateral relationship that helps us cope with regional conflicts, combat terrorism, promote commerce, 
end human trafficking, on which we are making some progress in Kuwait. And I would have no higher priority than protecting the safety and security of all Americans in Kuwait. In my office, I keep a reminder of Saddam Hussein's occupation of Kuwait over 25 years ago, a license plate he issued to pretend that Kuwait was a province of Iraq. It is also a reminder to me of our soldiers' bravery in ending that occupation. Today, Kuwait is a key member of our counter-Daesh co coalition. It hosts the headquarters of the Combined Joint Task Force and is a world leader in aid to the Syrian refugees. Kuwait has also provided invaluable help to stabilize Iraq economically and is hosting the Yemen negotiations. Daesh's 20, June 2015 bombing of the Imam Sadiq Mosque in Kuwait City increased Kuwaiti resolve to combat terrorism and stop terrorist financing. We believe more can be done and we are helping build Kuwait's capacity in this regard. Kuwaitis are major investors in the United States economy, creating jobs for Americans. There are opportunities for American business and technical assistance in oil, petrochemical, and renewable energy technology. And Kuwait's investment in power generation, healthcare, and other areas present enormous opportunities for American business. In the region, Kuwait stands out for its relatively open political environment. There's a relatively free press, and the elected parliament is independent but there is room for improvement. Five generations of Kuwaitis have studied in the United States. If confirmed, I will prioritize our engagement with these generations. Ranking Member Cardin, I believe my experience working on regional conflicts and counterterrorism, and promoting commerce and American values would help me advance U.S. interests in Kuwait. If confirmed, I would look forward to welcoming you in Kuwait to enhance our valuable relationship Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Uh, thank you for your testimony. Ms. Perez. Thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. It is an honor and a privilege to appear today to seek your confirmation as Ambassador of the United States to the Republic of Chile. I'm humbled by the trust and confidence President Obama and Secretary Kerry have shown in putting forward my nomination. I would like to take a moment to recognize the members of my family, my mom and dad, Irene and John Zellis, who are at home in Chicago, and my husband, Al, son, Michael, daughter Caroline and her husband Jacob, and my daughter Marisa, who are here with me today. They stood by my side as I proudly represented the United States overseas and in Washington. I would be proud to lead our U.S. mission in Santiago, which has representatives from more than a dozen federal agencies and terrific locally employed staff, many of whom are U.S. citizens. Chile is one of our closest hemispheric allies. Shared values and mutual interests anchor our bilateral and regional cooperation in almost every sector. It is a nation that supports free markets, human rights, rule of law, and respect for the environment. It is a contributor to global peacekeeping missions and supports shared priorities in security and military cooperation. Our bilateral trade has quadrupled to almost $28 billion per year since our free trade agreement went into effect in 2004. Supporting U.S. businesses in Chile and Chilean businesses investing in the United States will increase economic opportunity and prosperity for both countries. Our cooperation in the sciences and on the environment is second to none. U.S. and Chilean scientists collaborate to uncover the mysteries of outer space, conserve our oceans, and advance scientific research in seismology and clean energy. Our people-to-people -people relationships are robust and wide-ranging. 50,000 Americans live in Chile, and in 2015, a record 220,000 Americans visited there. Our shared focus on education, entrepreneurship, opportunities for women and children, 
and collaborative research projects make the United States and Chile natural allies able to take on global challenges together. Ranking Member Cardin, if confirmed, I will work with you, your colleagues, and all U.S. stakeholders to advance the interests of the United States and to deepen the bonds between our two countries. I would work every day to ensure the safety and security of our embassy staff and all American citizens. This will always be my number one priority. Thank you, and I'd be pleased to answer your questions. Well, once again, uh, we do thank all four of you uh, for being here today and your willingness to continue in public service. Uh, we, uh, as I said earlier, we also thank your families. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, I, I will be asking uh, questions for the record in regards to human rights and your commitment to keep this committee informed on the challenges that you face in each of your countries and where we can be helpful in advancing uh, international uh, human rights values. Uh, Mr. Silverman, I would like to get your input here. We, Kuwait's a very important strategic uh, country for the United States. Uh, and at times, uh, the State Department can put the strategic importance of the relationship ahead of advancement on human rights. Kuwait has been designated by the State Department Trafficking in Persons Report for 2015, Tier 3, the worst level, for the eighth year in a row. They passed a law, but there's been no demonstrated significant effort to prosecute or convict trafficking offenders. So can you just uh, assure me that this will be a priority uh, of your mission to uh, trafficking in persons is modern day slavery. Uh, we have international commitments on this, Kuwait must do better. That uh, you will use your office to make sure that the host country is aware of these concerns and our willingness to work with them to improve their record. Thank you very much, Senator. I uh, indeed uh, have made this a priority throughout my career in the other countries that I've served in, trying to combat uh, trafficking in persons, and it will be a top priority for me in Kuwait. I will say, uh, Ranking Member, that uh, over the last year we have maybe belatedly seen progress in the area, including prosecution. So now. We have a number of prosecutions just within uh, the last year. We set ourselves roughly 11 goals uh, that uh, areas where we thought Kuwait needed to improve over the uh, uh, over between last year and this year, and we think they've improved in nine of those areas. But uh, prosecutions are extremely important. They have now begun, and we will and certainly encourage them to continue because they send an enormously important signal beyond taking those people out of commission as traffickers as running slavery rings, uh, but the message that it sends that this should not be allowed. And uh, if I am confirmed, uh, I will certainly make this uh, a top priority in my constant and in the mission's uh, constant uh, engagement with the Kuwaiti authorities. I thank you for that. Um, it's just important that we underscore this. Uh, I've done that on my visits to different countries, and I know that our missions are targeted with the assessments, their recommendations, but it's helpful the more engagement you have uh, with Kuwait on this issue. Uh, Mr. Silman, uh, one of our challenges in Iraq has been establishing an effective unitary federal state. It's, it's fundamental to our long-term success. And we have conflicting uh, problems uh, with uh, whether we do provide direct funds to the Kurds, whether we work through a central government, the protection of the Sunni, uh, areas and the involvement of Shiite militia. 
How do you uh, see unfolding the U.S. objective of establishing, uh, not just the U.S. objective, I hope it's the Iraqi objective, of a functioning federal state that can protect all of the ethnic communities? Second, Senator Carter, thank you very much. It's a very important issue that uh, Prime Minister Abadi himself has addressed when he took office by seeking to find a functional federalism in, in the uh, Iraqi government, which is to say an effective central government that is able to carry out the functions uh, of a central government, but decentralization of a lot of decision-making to provincial authorities, governors, and provincial councils to deal with more of the day-to-day -day issues uh, that are more easily dealt with closer to the people that the government serves. So I think, Senator, our goal is to do both of these things at the same time, to increase the efficiency of the government in Baghdad for the things that it must do, um, distributing oil revenue, figuring out how to uh, defend the country, but continuing Prime Minister Abadi's uh, desire to decentralize decision-making uh, for uh, a number of ministries and giving the authority directly to the people elected to serve the people in their own provinces. I think that's the right blueprint. It's gonna take a lot of attention and there are gonna be a lot of bumps along the way. So uh, we've invested a great deal in Iraq and, and clearly we have seen some military success on retaining uh, territory, but we know if we don't have the ability to hold on through good governance these areas, we're just gonna see a repeat of what's happened in the past. So it's, it's gotta be a, a focus of, of our priority in that mission. I thank you for your answer on that. Ms. Perez, if I could, uh, Chile, of course, is a partner of the United States. We have a free trade agreement, and yet they're on the watch list on um, trade issues. They, their intellectual property protection has been uh, unacceptable to us. How do you see your role in uh, dealing with the concerns that we've had uh, with Chile in the enforcement of our free trade agreements? Uh, thank you, um, Senator Cardin. I do agree that our trade relationship with Chile has been very strong. As I mentioned, it's quadrupled since 2004, and it's almost $28 billion a year now. I, I believe we have an opportunity. Uh, Chile is a TPP country, and all the TPP countries do understand that they need to make the agreement commitments uh, a reality before this uh, will go into effect. And so I think that using this uh, will, be, will allow us to move forward on the regulatory changes that need to take place to protect IPR, both under the FTA and under TPP. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with the highest levels of the Chilean government to have political will to make sure that those changes do move forward. Well, I would ask you to keep us informed on that issue. There's the, uh, the trade agreement, of course, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is under consideration. It's not expected to come up in, uh, for at least a few months. Um, and uh, I agree with you. Uh, we are looking at a country like Chile that we have an agreement with as to what steps they're taking in order to protect intellectual property. There are other issues involved, but in Chile's case, that seems to be one of the dominant issues. So we appreciate you reporting back to us as to how uh, that is progressing your conversations. Absolutely, Senator. Ambassador McKinley and I just talked recently, but I, uh, earlier today, but I wanna just underscore a point that, that, that we talked about that I think is important on the record, and that is we know the, the problems in Brazil today, they're well understood, it's a democratic country using its institutions dealing with an impeachment of, of its leader, with a temporary or acting uh, president at the present time, 
Uh, our relationship with Brazil has gotten stronger. I think we all would agree in the last year or two. So how do you see uh, your role working with the realities in Brazil today, a, an economy that is in, has been challenged in a political system that's dealing with a serious corruption issue? Uh, how do we use the current circumstances and continue to be able to build a stronger tie with Brazil? Well, the crisis of, of the past two years has actually uh, required us to respond to a uh, working relationship with Brazil on a host of levels because we do historically have extremely close ties working on economic issues, security issues, on advancement of human rights concerns. And the foundation for what we're dealing with now was set last June uh, when President Rousseff and President Obama met here in Washington and uh, agreed on a host of bilateral dialogues uh, which are continuing um, with the interim administration. These dialogues provide an extraordinarily strong foundation to deal with our trade concerns, to deal with our concerns about uh, international telecommunications, internet governance, energy security, climate cooperation, law enforcement cooperation, countering terrorism, and dealing uh, with a variety of people-to-people -people exchanges that are extremely important to both nations. So, irregardless of the current political situation, and Brazil is facing a difficult moment, it's a mature democracy, it's the second largest economy in the hemisphere, one of the 10 largest in the world, and we're confident that the country has uh, both the maturity and the strength to come through the current crisis and uh, for us to continue developing a very firm relationship between us. Thank you. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and good to have these witnesses uh, here. Congratulations on your, uh, your nominations. I look forward to supporting these nominations. Um, maybe I'll just kind of start with Ambassador Silliman. Uh, you were a very gracious host to us when we were in Kuwait last year, uh, arriving just within a few hours after the bombing of the Shia Mosque in Kuwait. And one of the things that was so impressive to us, the Codel that I was with, was how the royal family decided, look, the right thing to do is to open up the largest Sunni mosque in Kuwait and invite the family members of those who lost their lives into a Sunni mosque and to have the community come and pay their respects to them. And that was a very powerful thing. And it was good that we were able to, to go and to be part of that. Um, talk to, and now you're going to move into this, this new country that has its own sectarian challenges. Uh, Senator Cardin asked you about this. I'm curious about the pace of reforms and the sectarian issues and divides within Iraq also. My surmise has been that some of the battlefield success against ISIL um, can have a positive and energizing effect in terms of people feeling good about the, the government. But I, I would just like to ask you your perception of the degree to which the Abadi government is, you know, is reaching out to, to uh, create an Iraq that is more inclusive of all. That's been such a huge problem uh, under the previous prime minister. I'm curious about your thoughts now. Well, Senator Kane, thank you for the question. I think you're exactly right. The, uh, it has been clear now to Iraqis that they are much more effective in fighting Daesh together than they are separately, and uh, it has uh, helped the development of a much more uh, tight military structure. Um, however, we also believe that it's going to be very important 
to engage in what we call bottom-up reconciliation, which is essentially take, uh, forming local security forces to help the military uh, take territory back from Daesh, uh, compose local police forces to hold the territory after Daesh, reinsertion of elected local governments and insertion of some money to get the power going, the water going, schools open and hospitals working, to build again the confidence of local populations in their local governments and in the ability of Baghdad to manage the funds. Key to this is going to be, as I mentioned to Senator Cardin, decentralization of authority from Baghdad to the provinces. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Abadi thankfully has done this and has already pushed three of seven ministries <coughs> that have been uh, asked to decent, uh, decentralize out to the provinces. We think this is a very good sign mm -hmm. that will help uh, functional federalism and uh, integration of uh, uh, the various sects in, in Baghdad in Iraq in a positive way in the future. When we were with you last year in Kuwait, we went to Iraq uh, immediately after, and one of the concerns we had after time in Erbil was that the relationship between the Kurdish government and the central government at that time was, was pretty low. Uh, there was big disputes about oil revenue allocation and, you know, kind of an unwritten contract and how do we interpret it. A lot of suspicion and hostility. We, we had just come out of a NDAA proceeding here where there was a lot of uh, an effort by, promoted by the Kurds to have a, you know, basically separate arming uh, a relationship with the United States rather than going through the central government. My perception about reports from Iraq in the last maybe four months or so is that, um, President Barzani and the uh, current Prime Minister had had a little bit of a rapprochement without necessarily solving the oil revenue allocation issues. There seemed to be a tighter relationship, and this was maybe three or four months ago. Is that your perception today, or is this still kind of a day-by-day -day issue in terms of the relationship between the Kurds and the central government? Yes, Senator Khan. In fact, I think it helps prove your initial point that the fight against Daesh has was one of the initial reasons that Prime Minister Abadi and President Barzani spoke. Um, and there has been much more military cooperation between the Peshmerga and Iraqi security forces. Uh, but in general, this has uh, broadened to a more positive relationship. Uh, if confirmed, Senator, I'm hoping that I can work with both, the, uh, with both Erbil and Baghdad to improve this relationship and to deal with things like a final oil agreement. Thank you. Ambassador McKinley, welcome back to the Western Hemisphere. I know that this is like your, your passion, uh, and you've just, you know, you've taken a number of other posts, but to come back in Brazil, you know, they just thought they'd give you an easy little post, you know, back in your, in your neighborhood. Um, it's great to have you going there. What a challenging time. I mean, I think of the challenges we deal with here, and then I think about corruption and economic challenges and an impeachment and an Olympics and Zika. I mean, it, it, you, if you wrote it, uh, people would say it's too unbelievable. It has to be fictional, but, but you know that's the truth that you're dealing with. The one thing I really wanted to ask about is sort of on the corruption side. There's been a Washington Post report recently about testimony uh, about, the, I guess, one of the former directors of Petrobras that really implicates a whole range of, of uh, Brazilian officials, including the interim president, in some pretty massive corruption. Um, what you, you know? What do you think the uh, appetite or likelihood will be in terms of those in governing positions to tackle the question and what, if anything, can the U.S. do to be of assistance in that? Well, frankly, what has been extraordinary, Senator, about the last two years is just how transparent the process of addressing uh, the corruption scandals has been in Brazil. Mm -hmm. We've been dealing with rule of law, a strong constitutional process, civil society, 
an extraordinarily active media that has covered every aspect of this, police, federal investigators, court systems that are allowed to do their work largely unimpeded, the issues being discussed uh, in the heart of government openly by politicians, and significant actors across the range of Brazilian society uh, bring, being brought to account. And so if you look at the process as it has evolved, it actually demonstrates the underlying strength of Brazilian democracy and the ability of that democracy to respond to the demands of its people for a more transparent and accountable government. Going forward, obviously, I'm not in a position, I don't think anyone is, to predict um, what a next set of revelations will be. But on the basis of the track record thus far, it is a very uh, strong example of a society taking the corrective measures to set itself back on course. And Brazil, over these past 20 years, has been a country mm -hmm. that has transformed itself, becoming not, as I've already mentioned, one of the largest economies in the world, but created a new middle class, adding 50 million people to the middle mm -hmm. class, uh, creating uh, world-beating companies uh, that complete, compete globally, uh, and becoming a much more uh, active partner for the United States and the broader international community on transnational concerns. So notwithstanding the current crisis, there seems to be a very strong foundation mm -hmm. for being able to carry forward, not just the bilateral relationship, but to be optimistic about Brazil's future. Thank you. Mr. Chair, I'm over, but I have one question for each. Could I continue, or would Senator Markey want to come in? Is that? It looks like you may continue. Okay. You've got Great. Thank you. Well, Mr. Chairman, I, I just want to ask, kind of picking up on the way I intro it with Ambassador Silliman on the Kuwait. I mean, we, we were there very briefly, and I'd been there once before, but I was impressed in this time of tragedy that there was an effort to really stop it from being a sectarian point of division, but to pull together. What are, what are the issues, kind of current status of civil society issues and, and human rights issues in Kuwait that you'll be kind of paying the most attention to in your, in your post, should you be confirmed? Thank you, Senator, for the question. We spoke, the ranking member mentioned, uh, raised a question about uh, trafficking in persons, mm -hmm. which is very high up on our, uh, our agenda. Uh, and I'd like to give credit to Ambassador Silliman and, 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 mm -hmm. and his staff for all the work that they've done in this, this regard. Freedom of expression is, uh, it remains uh, an issue uh, that has uh, had uh, some ups and downs uh, in Kuwait, but something that we're very much uh, uh, promoting and uh, we're working with the civil society uh, as well. Uh, we have uh, uh, the role of women, of course, there, there were members of parliament, uh, female members of parliament uh, in the past. Uh, there is a female uh, member of the, of the cabinet, uh, but uh, we, it, it, the parliament is often boisterous uh, in it and uh, we're, uh, we're really looking to uh, to promote across the board of those freedom of expression and, uh, and uh, freedom of uh, speech uh, issues. Great, thank you. And then Ms. Perez, I've followed the fortunes of Chile for a very long time, but have never visited. Um, the, an issue that I'm kind of interested in now is that the, the role that Chile plays regionally, sort of uh, beyond its borders in terms of leadership with a lot of challenges in neighboring countries. Talk a little bit about the role that Chile plays in regional organizations and 
Um, you know, I think they're doing a number of things well. They have their own challenges, certainly. They're doing a number of things well. Are they playing a good role in trying to export uh, good practices elsewhere? Thank you, uh, Senator. As you noted, uh, Chile is really a success story for the hemisphere. Uh, and after the Pinochet era, they have really become a, a, a beacon in the area. Uh, and they do a lot of really good work, and I think we have the opportunity to do much more. So, for example, they took over the presidency of the Pacific Alliance July 1st. One of the things that uh, President Bachelet has said that she would like to reach out to Mercosur to try to re-engage with that alliance, which I think would be a good thing both for the Pacific Alliance and for Mercosur. Uh, they have been very vocal recently on Venezuela, uh, in starting with the statements in the OAS on May 20th, uh, which they, uh, the Chilean foreign minister wrote himself and mm -hmm. then had that statement uh, co-signed by the Argentines and the Uruguayans. And they have been with the United States uh, on uh, asking for an active dialogue. They also are working with us in Central America, and uh, they support uh, various kinds of civil society and governmental reforms and in places like El Salvador and mm -hmm. Guatemala and in Honduras they've actually worked uh, with both police and judicial systems on rule of law. Excellent. So I'm, I'm I really think there's an awful lot that's being done now, and I do think that there's opportunities for the future. And uh, if confirmed, I look forward to the opportunities to see how we might continue to work together and partner. Again, I think they have a lot to offer, and sometimes it's good to hear from somebody in the region um, about what they might do and to model ex the, the kinds of uh, successes that they've had. Yeah, I would, I would venture to say that a Chile speaking out about need for reforms in Venezuela is, is a, in some ways a much more powerful thing than even us speaking out. And I know there's been frustrations expressed on this committee before about other nations in the Americas uh, kind of, um, you know, going sado voce when it comes to critiques of Venezuela. But having uh, uh, nations in the region do it is powerful, and I'm glad to hear what you say. And with that, thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Ambassador Silliman, we are now nearly a month into the Iraqi ground offensive to defeat ISIS in Fallujah. During the first three weeks, Iraqi forces appeared to be bogged down by obstacles and bombs that ISIS planted on routes into the city. But this week, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service entered the city center and reports say that ISIS fighters are mostly withdrawing without a fight. This appears to be a tactical success, but I am concerned about whether Iraq's government is repeating patterns that could lead to strategic failure. On June 9th, Dan, Dan DeLuce and Henry Johnson wrote in Foreign Policy magazine that the battle plan for Fallujah would follow what, quote, American officials call the Tikrit rules, in informal agreements, that Iranian-backed Shiite militias won't enter Sunni cities reclaimed from Islamic State as the condition under which the U.S. will support Iraqi forces by bombing ISIS targets from the air. But time and again, it has appeared that the Iraqi government cannot or will not uphold their end of this bargain. Since its liberation to Crete itself, Shia militia within the city have menaced Sunni civilians with ISIS, while ISIS continues to launch attacks from the outskirts. In Ramadi, the city center was largely destroyed to push ISIS out, but fighting continues outside the city. During the current operation in Fallujah, Shia militias are located outside the city center, apparently in technical compliance with the so-called Tikrit rules, but they are in an ideal position to launch shells into the city and to intercept people trying to escape the violence. At the end of May, 
They were even visited by Iranian General Soleimani. Over the past month, we have heard very credible reports of indiscriminate shelling and that Shiite militia and Iraqi police have detained, tortured, and killed Sunni civilians who were detained while trying to flee to safety. Ambassador Suleiman, what is your perspective on the so-called Tikrit rules that appear to ban Shia militias from entering city centers during an offensive, but allow them to take up positions where they can attack Sunni civilians? Senator Markey, thank you very much for the question. Um, if you look at what has been happening in the past few weeks in Fallujah, um, you see both good and bad. There has been, in fact, a tactical military victory, and it appears that uh, the Daesh forces have now been uh, sequestered in one or two neighborhoods on the outskirts of Fallujah. We were very concerned, Senator, by the same reports that you saw about uh, atrocities taking place against civilians who were fleeing the fighting in Fallujah. But we think that Prime Minister Abadi and the Iraqis have done a relatively good job of uh, reacting to that. First of all... So are we pushing Abadi to back these Shia away? And is Abadi doing that? Well, we are pushing Abadi to uh, condemn the abuses, and Abadi has uh, formed a high-level commission headed by the deputy governor of Anbar province to investigate some of the abuses, and there have already been arrests based on this investigation in a very short time. Um, one other issue that we have been concerned he, he about... He has arrested Shia leaders? Yes, sir. He has arrested people who were individually uh, alleged to have committed abuses um, following the, uh, the fighting in Fallujah. Um, so are you convinced that a body is putting in place then a set of uh, judicial procedures that are going to give confidence to the Sunni majority in Tikrit or these other cities that in fact there is a process that will protect their rights? The answer is we have been pressing him to do so. It appears that he's actually reacted in a very positive way. As I said, having as the chair of the committee looking into the investigation, the deputy governor of the province where that occurred is a very important message to the Sunni population that the investigation will be serious. It's a very, in the very early stages now, but we will continue to press this investigation. Uh, and as I said, I believe that the Prime Minister understands why it is necessary for him to uh, reduce sectarian tensions and to bring uh, all the, the communities of Iraq. Uh, do, do you think that the 2005 Constitution provides a framework to get, give actual protections that are credible to the Yazidis, to the Kurds, to the Christians, to the Sunnis, and that they can credibly rely upon those, um, those provisions in order to give them protections given the last 11-year history in that country? Well, Senator, one of my priorities, if confirmed, will be to continue the American uh, uh, press to help minority communities across Iraq uh, we provided more than $100 million worth of assistance since 2008 to help minority communities. We also believe that uh, the decentralization of decision-making to the <coughs> provinces will go a long way to providing communities themselves the ability to make the decisions to, on their own development decisions and their own security decisions. This is an initiative 
that we have supported but has been done by Prime Minister Abadi. Uh, we are in the early stages of all of this and we will continue, and I will continue if confirmed, uh, to press this to its natural conclusion. Yeah. Now, Mosul is going to be a much more difficult uh, military proposition than Tikrit, uh, Fallujah, or Ramadi. And a lot of it's going to be dependent upon whether or not the Sunnis uh, in that city actually believe that they are going to be given their rights uh, and that they then have sufficient reason to go against ISIS in that city. Uh, and so I, I can't tell you how important this is going to be from a political perspective. That's what we are. We're politicians here. That's the one thing we do know, that constituencies know very quickly whether or not you're on their side or you're not on their side. Um, Mr. Silverman comes from Massachusetts, so he knows that uh, we understand politics um, uh, that way. So I urge you very strongly uh, to, uh, to make, send that message very clearly. And if I may, uh, I just have one final question, if it's, if it's um, uh, possible. Ambassador McKinley, I wanted to ask you about the state of Brazil's health care system. We all saw the call by some pretty prominent health experts to cancel the Olympics in Rio because, in their view, Brazilian authorities would not be able to manage the threat of Zika. Just seven weeks before Rio uh, set to host the Olympics, Rio's state governor, gov governor said that the state government may not be able to provide basic services. And then Brazil's new health minister, Ricardo Barros, said that the country in the future may be unable to uphold all the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, such as universal access to health care, given fiscal constraints. This is of concern to many of us here today, not only for the millions of Brazilians who are facing a failing health system in the midst of a real public health crisis caused by Zika and the brain disorders which it is linked to, but also for us here in the United States as Zika becomes a real danger to the United States. So my question to you is, is Brazil's healthcare system in, in store for a collapse uh, or a major shakeup? How able is the government to deal with the satiation uh, given the current political crisis and the deepest recession in generations? How does universal healthcare compare to other social spending priorities of, of Brazilians and are they investing enough right now in Zika uh, prevention in order to protect not only their own citizens, but those of the rest of the region and, in fact, the hemisphere? That's a broad question, Senator, and thank you for it. But uh, if I could take in turn the issues you've raised. Brazil, in fact, over the last 20 years has uh, developed a system of health care for the broader population, a population of 200 million people, which is the envy of the developing world. And the question now in the context, as you rightly point out, of a major uh, fiscal crisis, uh, what the future holds, not just for health services, but other services inside the country. The immediate concern is how they respond uh, to the Zika crisis. And the fact of the matter is <laughs> that uh, since uh, it, it came on the scene, uh, the government has mobilized on a very significant level in terms of uh, hundreds of thousands of health workers throughout the country, um, security personnel as well, to address everything from awareness campaigns to controlling the mosquito vector to expanding international cooperation, particularly with the United States, in exploring how to develop 
new vaccines, uh, how to deal with uh, the analysis and diagnosis of Zika, the uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, the microcephaly um, cases that have appeared. The cooperation with CDC uh, is ongoing with HHS. But Brazil historically has also led in response to um, other crises, particularly HIV-AIDS, and have uh, the infrastructure, the medical knowledge, know-how uh, to respond forcefully to what's happening now. In so terms, you, you think you think Brazil will have the resources well, in uh, place to be able to protect its population uh, during the Olympics uh, and beyond. And in, uh, yes, I do. And in fact, uh, the views both of CDC, the World Health Organization. Uh, today, there was an article by the head of the Global Health Institute at Harvard. All believe that the risk of infection from Zika during the Olympics is extraordinarily small. And we are entering the winter period when the mosquito vector uh, is much less of a threat. But more importantly are the proactive steps that are being taken. The uh, $300 million the Brazilian government has committed to addressing Zika, the mobilization of health services, the coordination co um, and, uh, with CDC on developing vaccines, carrying out trial studies on case control in different Brazilian states. Uh, there is a very significant effort underway uh, to address this, but uh, for the concern of the athletes and uh, American citizens who will be visiting Brazil, uh, as I said, CDC, WHO have uh, made clear that at this time uh, they uh, do not believe that should be a major concern, okay. except for women who are pregnant. So uh, thank you and thank each of you for your service to our country. You'll all be excellent representatives, and thank you. Uh, well, Senator well, thank I, I appreciate the responses that all the witnesses have made to the questions and to the, uh, the information our committee has requested. As Chairman Corker indicated, the record will stay open to the close of business on Thursday for questions that members may have. We ask that you respond to them promptly so that the committee can complete its work in, in a timely way. I, I, I want to underscore the point that Senator Murphy made earlier about the uh, Senator Corker and the leadership of this committee moving nominations as promptly as we can to the floor. We know that there's a shortened calendar this year, so your cooperation will certainly help us a great deal. And again, thank you all very much. The committee will stand adjourned.